You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. I'm super happy to share my conversation with Scott Friesen, the SVP of Strategic Analytics at Echo Global Logistics. Um, Scott and I originally met uh, at a conference and we found out we both have backgrounds in the performing arts originally. And uh, Scott, Scott's a really interesting dude uh, and his approach to making uh, successful uh, data products and analytics solutions uh, is very much rooted in relationships, uh, empathy, trust, and intimacy uh, with stakeholders and, and the people that uh, his team is building solutions for. And so I wanted Scott to come in and kind of share like, how, did he, how does he do what he does in order to get people to use uh, the, the predictions and the models uh, that his group is putting out? Because uh, at the end of the day, the technology itself is not enough uh, to create value in the business. There has to be engagement uh, in the last mile with the people that uh, he's creating um, these tools for. So Scott's going to share some of his uh, his journey and his approach to uh, creating value with analytics and, and data science. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So again, this is Scott Friesen, SVP of Strategic Analytics from Echo Global Logistics. Next on Experiencing Data. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. Uh, we have Scott Friesen uh, on the line today from Echo Global Logistics. Scott, are you there? I am here. Sweet. How's it going? It's Friday. <laughs> it's going well. It's a beautiful day here in Chicago. It's gorgeous nice. out. Excellent. You know, I've just I was watching the uh, an old SNL. My my wife is Polish, and so I was like, oh, you have to watch Bill Schwartzky's Super Fan from Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and like and her dad from Poland was here. Totally didn't get it. Like. I mean, the sausages and beer is funny, but <laughs> I'm like, well, this, is what, this is what American people think about Chicago. It wasn't culturally authentic. Is that what you're saying? We didn't, we didn't nail that target. Yeah. yeah I actually went, um, <laughs> my son had hockey tryouts, uh, last night uh -huh. and, and I actually went to, um, the little goat tavern or the, sorry, the Billy goat tavern, which is of the famous John Belushi cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Okay. No Pepsi Coke. That that whole skit from the seventies, like eight early eighties, like that uh -huh. that comes from that actual place in Chicago. Uh -huh. And I'd never been there before, even though I've lived here several years. Uh -huh. So, you know, I got a cheeseburger. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, I I would love to talk about sausage and grilling and, and all that, but I think we have some cooler things to talk about with your. That's uh, a different podcast. That's a different podcast, and uh, let's let's nerd out to some uh, some analytics. So um, we've met each other, I think, at the International Institute for Analytics uh, Symposium. Uh, that's you have, right. You have a music background like me, and I thought it was interesting when we when we did the planning call for this. Uh, you talked about something that you tell your your graduate students in one of the courses you teach. So tell people who you are, and then I'd like you to kind of repeat what you told me about uh, how music, you, how you think music relates to the craft of uh, making data products and analytic solutions. 
Sure. So uh, full disclosure, my undergraduate degree is from a liberal arts college. I went to Swarthmore College as an undergrad, and and that definitely informs a lot of this sort of holistic point of view that I have. Um, I was a biology major uh, and and was actually originally pre-med, so took a lot of natural science classes, um, but also took, uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare. And, uh, so, um, so I had that sort of educational background. I then moved to New York city and got into the music industry and I was an artist manager. I worked for Bobby McFerrin's management company. I started my own management company, represented a terrific band and a, a wonderful singer songwriter and, and, and had some successes there, but ultimately not enough success that, uh, that's what I'm still doing. Cause, uh, that also would be a different podcast. Um, but, uh, then decided, um, that, uh, the business side of the music business was more appealing to me than I had anticipated. And so I went and got my MBA, uh, at Columbia, uh, university in New York and, uh, then joined sort of the big corporate game. And I've, I've had largely a background in retail. I worked for Best Buy for quite a while, Ulta Beauty, the cosmetics retailer did a stint in consulting. And now I found myself over in the logistics side of things and, um, but yeah, the, what you reference about the music is something that, uh, you know, I, I have this sort of belief that great analytics is a lot like great jazz, that the good analytics is highly structured. You might think of it like classical music, but truly great analytics is more like jazz in that you've got sort of a, a structure, uh, a meter and, and key and lead lines and so forth. Um, that's sort of the business problem that's presented to you. There's something that the business needs to accomplish. Uh, and then you've got your ability to play your instrument, which is your techniques, your skills, your bag of tricks that you've developed over time and that you're comfortable with. And then when it comes time to apply what you know against the backdrop of the business problem, you're trying to exercise not only technical uh, mental muscles, but also creative ones and come up with new solutions, new way of seeing things. So, yeah, I probably took that metaphor sort of to an absurd extent when I taught, um, the MBA students at Loyola, um, business analytics, because I actually opened the class showing them a jazz chart and then, um, used to play that play jazz music at the opening of every class to sort of try to reinforce that message. But, you know, I think it also helps with, making sure that the analytic industry uh, or, or segment of, um, of the world doesn't come across as too dry, too unapproachable, too academic, um, because ultimately the, those, those, that impression actually impedes our success ultimately in terms of you know, fact-based decision-making. So. Sure, sure. I, I agree with some of the parallels there. Like you can, you can learn all of the tech, you can learn all the technique and the theory behind jazz or any form of music, and you can then apply all that stuff with a lot of technical precision and then end up putting out a performance or a record that still doesn't connect with people. So it's not enough. And I just heard this at a conference I was at yesterday. It's like, it's not enough to just understand the technology part and how to create great models, how to make sure the data is the right data. You can get all that stuff right and still kind of fail in the last mile to, to deliver value there. So, and that's what I wanted to talk about today was kind of your, your work. So you're the SVP of strategic analytics, correct at echo. That's right. Yep. What are the, some of the things you're doing to ensure that your, your department's 
work matters in the sense that it's actually getting used and people are maybe they're coming to you instead of pushing tools on them. They're saying, hey, come to us. I assume that's the case that there's some kind of relationships you've, you've formed there. Tell us about how, how you how you do that. Yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, I'm going to start at the most philosophical and then try to work my way towards more tactical. Okay. So uh, I just had a new uh, guy join our team and he just started at the beginning of this week. And so I did my orientation uh, with him as I do with anyone who joins the team. And one of the things I shared with him that I've been doing with every orientation for many years is this framework called the trust equation. And I have to give credit where credit is due. My first boss at Best Buy, Cal Patel, actually was the one that taught this framework to me. But it's extremely helpful, especially for an analytic professional um, to have this sort of uh, actual equation to diagnose change management and human interaction circumstances. So the equation is trust equals credibility times intimacy divided by risk. And so if you dissect that a little bit and say that credibility comes from doing what you say you're going to do, doing it skillfully, um, being reliable and being useful, uh, then, then that's sort of how you gain trust by showing up with credibility. The second piece is intimacy and the thing about intimacy is to me, there's sort of two parts. One is you're not just the name at the bottom of an email address. People have to actually understand that you're a fully formed human being. Uh, there's a reason why business trips still exist. There's a reason why you and I met in person at the IIA symposium instead of just attending that via web conference. Um, you know, that sort of interaction matters. And the other part of it though, is showing the empathy to, uh, to understand other people's needs and, uh, and what's motivating them. And this is where I think some of the last mile starts to fall apart is the ability to really listen deeply to whoever your internal client is, if it's a business person or an operations person or a finance person or an HR person or whoever it is that has a need, putting yourself in their shoes, understanding what's motivating them is about sort of building the intimacy of that connection and that relationship and makes a massive difference in terms of the success of your work and the development of that trust. So, so that, those are sort of the things that are driving it up, driving trust up is increased credibility, increased intimacy. And then underneath credibility times intimacy, you have risk. And the thing about risk is there, there can be real risk and there can be perceived risk. I find that more often what you're really working with is perceived risk. Sometimes the risk is real. You're, you're changing something fundamental or something important. But other times you're asking someone to sort of do things a little bit differently or operate in a different way, consider things differently. And, and those can come with a perception of risk that you have to be aware of. Uh, I had a finance professor years ago who said, the nature of value creation is change. And that always stuck with me. Um, and so what that means in the context of the trust equation is if I'm going to introduce change to an organization or to a group of people or to an individual, then I'm going to introduce perceived risk. And so the way for me to drive positive change, the way for me to drive adding value to the organizations that I'm a part of is the ability to create enough 
credibility and intimacy that I can get away with introducing change that benefits the organization. Because if that equation, you know, flips and it becomes less than one, right, then my, then my, the risk perception has uh, become more than the buildup of my credibility, my intimacy. Now people aren't going to, aren't going to go along with whatever it is that we're trying to do. So it's a little, you know, it's a little heady, it's a little philosophical, but I do find that when I'm coaching members of my team or when I'm sort of diagnosing different situations that I can often identify if there's something that's not advancing, trying to understand which of those puzzle pieces is not where it needs to be uh, is a very, very helpful way of figuring that out. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I'll never forget. I actually, before I came to work at Echo full time, I was a consultant. I, we're working on this one particular project and, and this IT system. And I was watching this business analyst from IT in a meeting with one of the senior most executives. And I, I was just, I was observing this dynamic where he kept trying to land a message and the executive was just not buying it. And I watched him sort of approach it over and over. And it was, it was, was kind of hard to watch because I felt like I was watching this young man, you know, kind of just smack himself into a plate class window over and over. And I really <laughs> didn't want right. that to be happening, you know, for painful, him. Painful. Um, painful. It was very, it was painful to watch. But I, you know, but, but what I observed in that case is that he had not established adequate credibility and he was introducing something that the, that the business leader perceived as risky. And so, you know, I was watching and I asked myself, like, is it an intimacy thing or credibility thing? And in that particular case, it was very clear because I knew that the executive liked him individually. So it wasn't like an intimacy thing. It was a credibility thing. And he hadn't established, he hadn't taken the time to either establish a credibility or figure out how to reduce the perception of risk right. in that situation. Right. So I have found it to be really helpful in terms of diagnosing some of those things. So then if you translate that to so that sort of very you know, lofty, like I said, liberal arts background. So I, look, I, liked, I liked the philosophy class that I took as well. But as you sort of translate that down into a much more tactical arena, you find that that this trust element translates in a lot of different tactical ways. So one is a business leader asks for an answer to a question that may be deceptively simple. You know, they, they ask for why some number has changed or moved. And it seems on the surface like a very simple question, but it turns out there's a lot of moving parts that push on the numbers for well, that's true for most businesses and trying to dissect that and pull apart what was actually doing. It may actually involve some complex statistical modeling or other approaches. And, and so the ability to come back and land that information successfully in a way that the executive believes and then can act on again, sort of comes back to that trust element. Right. Um, and then the other thing in terms of the last mile, and this is something I actually really enjoyed about, that symposium we were at together, there were, there were conversations about this, this notion of sort of the last mile of analytics. There is the consultative aspect of what we do, which is sort of what I just described, where business person has a question and we do work to try to produce an answer or an insight to help them with that given situation. 
or what one of the things I'm loving about my current role at this particular company is the ability to operationalize or institutionalize at much broader scale answers to particular things. In a lot of cases, that's, you know, what should this price be or what do we think this cost is going to be or what is this forecasted value? And that's where the last mile becomes very tactical and very technical. Um, you know, I have to maintain a very close relationship with my partners in IT. And, you know, I think, I feel like a lot of times we're probably like siblings, which is to say, uh, we understand each other very well. Um, we, we, we like each other a lot every once in a while. We, we will fight the way, you know, sort of siblings do. Um, but, but there is a key interdependency between my function and IT and, and that last mile of executing and putting at scale into the hands of our hundreds of sales reps or operations people uh, results and answers of models that we've produced is, uh, is a big part of that. And so, you know, that, that's, that's how I'd also translate that, the answer to that question in terms of how we actually, you know, close the gap on the, on the last mile. Got it. And like, to make that like, to make that tactical, like, so a couple of things here, I, I tend to think of this in terms of em what, what you called the intimacy. I don't know if you equate that to empathy. Um, I tend mm -hmm. to talk a lot about it that, which is really understanding the, the, the thing you're talking about from the perspective of the other person, the, the work they're doing, their job, right. all of that. And so would you agree that the way to get to that has a lot to do with how you ask questions and what questions you ask and, and that it's, it really can be as simple as, is coming coming in with really good questions to get to, to dig into their world, that itself is what helps establish the credibility. Like when we do quote UX research or, you know, this discovery process, or there's a lot of different names for it, the, you know, why questioning, um, it, it's the questions themselves is what forms the intimacy that you're talking about. I, I just, yesterday when I gave my talk at the, the mini boss conference, uh, you know, I gave, I gave people here for data products and, and analytics solutions, here are a bunch of questions. And one of the main things with those is that they're open-ended questions. Uh, they're not, do you do this or do you not do this? They tend to be, they, they require open-ended answers to get that person to open up to you. And that intimacy can be formed simply through that questioning process. Do, do you agree or do you think there's other uh, more important ingredients than, than just the, the, the question choices uh, that go into forming that, like really tactically? I think the question choices, I think you're exactly right that they're critical. I do actually believe there's two other elements. I think, I don't know how I'd you know, rank their importance. I would just sort of say all three are important. The question quality and the nature of the questions you ask, you're absolutely right. And it's actually one of the things that I like about your podcast and your lens on all of this is the intersection of design and analytics, because that's how I try to come at things as well. And to me, great design thinking begins with great questions and great understanding of the subject of whatever you're, you're seeking to solve for with your design. Um, but there's two other pieces. One is I've said, <laughs> I've said at at least one conference <laughs> that you need to care about other people's success and you need to communicate that you care. Sure. 
about other people's success. And I say that almost as a prerequisite, you know, it's like uh, most folks will talk about the need to establish rapport, whether you're a salesperson or a psychotherapist, you know, you, you have to sort of, before you're going to dig in and, and get into all the questions, it's usually incredibly helpful to establish some basic rapport. And one of the things that I try to communicate in the earliest interactions with a business person is a certain degree of genuine interest and enthusiasm about what they do and that I am interested in their, them being successful in that endeavor. Then when you get into the questions, there's less likelihood of them wondering why you're asking sure. it because now you've laid a base of, they understand that you want to know those things so that you can best help. Right. Not because you are trying to call into question their ability or something sure, like that. Sure, sure. <clears throat> I probably glossed over that so, in my, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> for like what, why, why do I want to spend an hour talking to you about your job? It's not so I can see if I can mechanize it and replace it. It's like, I actually right. want to see if I can help you close more sales at a higher per widget price. Like, Exactly. Talking about how I can help do that with some data. Um, I'm not here to replace your job. I really actually think we can improve the time you spend on the phone, on the road. Like, <laughs> right. And, yeah. Right. So that's, that's, so the first piece to me is sort of trying to establish or, or communicate in any way that you're, you're concerned about it going well. Then the second is exactly what you said, which is well-formed questions, thoughtful questions, open-ended questions that are well-designed. There's a third piece to me, which is trying to listen with minimal filtering, which to me is also sort of a great design mindset, sure. you know, principle. Try to remove your own biases. Try to be aware of your own ladder of inference, you know, that might be producing filters inadvertently. Try to truly hear the person where they are and not be spending too much brain energy on over-interpretation in the moment. And, you know, I, I've had over the years some conversations with some folks that have left companies. And one of the most common things that I've seen when someone is talking to me about why they've chosen to leave a company is that their manager when they tried to talk to their manager about certain things they needed or wanted in their work experience, the manager wasn't able to really hear it. And I think that that is, it's a very sympathetic circumstance because the manager has got all kinds of pressures for stuff that they're supposed to do. So they're listening to what the person is saying, but there's this whole other voice of like the pressures that they're under to get certain things done. And therefore they're trying to make the person, what the person is saying fit that mold. Yep. Which when it goes badly ends up in the person didn't actually feel heard or the steps weren't actually taken to modify the circumstance. And then the end result is the employee leaves. Yeah. And that is, uh, it's just one, there's lots, there's lots and lots of examples of people not really listening to people. It's pretty much if you can find a group of human beings, there will be any number of people not really listening to other people. But that to me is 
the full arc of the ability to develop that rapport. You use the word empathy. I think that's exactly right. Um, and really see where people are coming from. Sure. One of the things we talk about when we do uh, design research is separating observations from interpretations. And so when, when you like mm-hmm. do a usability study, you know, oftentimes we'll open those up to people that like a stakeholder who maybe thinks, nope, this is how it needs to be. I know the sales team, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, let's actually see if this solution works for them. So we're going to actually test out whether or not, you know, they'll use this new pricing model and whatever. And you try to get them to separate uh, on this sticky note. I want you to write down interesting things you saw. And on the pink sticky notes, you can write down your interpretations of what they mean, but they're not the same thing. And I think that helps with that filtering that you're talking about. It's, it's also about having, taking your solution hat off. Like when, when I conduct design jams with clients, it's like hats off. Like we're not here to build anything right now. We're here to just think really wide about like pie in the sky, moonshot kind of stuff. If we could do anything, what would we do if time and money and technology wasn't, you know, without, without re- being ridiculous, but with, within some, you know, realm of, <laughs> of you know, like yeah. in the next five years, let's say, like even just start with something like that. We don't even know what might happen in three years with some technology. So it's taking off the implementation hat, the solution hat, which model I might use. Oh my God, there's no way we have that kind of transaction data from five years ago. We'll never get that. Like, just forget it for a minute <laughs> because you don't know where that's going to spin and, le- and, and lead you to uh, later on. Just, it, it's not so much that like, uh, maybe that data doesn't exist and everybody knows it, but when that gets thrown on the table, it may generate some other idea from somebody else, which creates another tangent. And that's kind of the, the divergent thinking, uh, you know, I'm kind of diverging a little bit here, but that's that's kind of my point, right? Is is you might on yeah. something that's really interesting that is somewhat feasible, and you wouldn't have gotten there if everyone is still like in your case, it's echo logistics. I know the data warehouse, I know the systems we have, and you you have this fence around everything you do. You don't bust out of the, <laughs> you don't come up with creative stuff that way. Uh, typically, you know, you're 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 incrementally moving, uh, and that's well. In that case, you're just playing the chart. Yeah. As yep. written, right? <laughs> There's no jamming That's going right. on in that case. Yeah, I. It's it's interesting you say that about, especially about sort of separating the observation from the interpretation. I really like that because I. One of the things I talk about is, you know, a lot of people have a lot of different definitions of analytics. Um, for me, I I categorize analytic the analytic pursuit into three fundamental activities. The first is to observe. The second is to relate, and the third is to predict. And I can generally put everything that we do into one of those three buckets or a combination of those three buckets. And the observation to me in particular is very much informed by, well, it's sort of to me a cross between how a scientist observes things and how an artist observes things. And if you had to say, well, what's the overlap there? The answer would be carefully. <laughs> they're going to observe it carefully. They're going to observe it both. They're going to they're going to sort of try on interpretation and without interpretation, like almost like taking on and off the glasses mm-hmm. uh, that, that are filtering how they're looking. And and great science and great art have both come from careful observations of things, and then potentially adding, applying an element of interpretation on it as necessary. 
but it begins with the purity of the observation. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, and then that, and then that of course goes right into once you can observe the thing, then you start asking yourself questions about, well, when this happens, does this happen over here? You know, what's the relationship between A and B? And then ultimately, you know, we're usually after, can we predict that if this thing happens, then this other thing over here will happen. That's sort of the ultimate, but you can't predict what you can't relate and you can't relate what you can't observe. Right. right. Is there a particular like story or project or something that you you've done at echo that where maybe you'll, maybe you came in and like the status quo was X. And so using some of these approaches, you ended up with Y. So maybe it was a, a redesign of some dashboard or some application or something, or the, maybe the data even stayed the same, but the, you know, the way it was presented or used by the sales team changed something like that, where you applied some of these, these techniques that you could kind of tell tell us about the before after. Yeah. So, you know, I have to be a little careful in terms of um, any sort of proprietary stuff, but I, but what I can talk about, um, I think pretty, pretty easily is when I first came to consult with the company, I was meeting one of uh, the talk executives. Um, actually, the, my boss now, uh, Dave Menzel, is our president and COO. And I was talking to him about analytic opportunities in the company. And I asked him, you know, what his thoughts were on various opportunities. He was talking about margin rate related to a particular area of our business. And I said, well, of course, margin rate. I mean, I came from this retail background, so I thought, you know, more margin, that sounds great. Uh, I said, what is your win rate right now in terms of when you have an opportunity to win and you make a pricing decision, what's your win rate? And he didn't know because the company didn't know. And I said, well, that's going to be an issue with messing with margin. If you can't understand the relationship between margin and win rate, those two things push in opposite directions. <laughs> so in order to maximize your total dollars, you're usually making trade-offs. I mean, it's sort of like economics fundamentals. You're, you're going to sell more of the thing if you sell it cheaper you sell less of the thing if you sell it more expensively. So the question is, what is the right balance right. that allows you to sell as much as possible at, at, at the best price you can get? And that's a case where there wasn't adequate observation. So the first thing we had to do was design a system that allowed us to capture information that had not been captured before. And so we did that and we were able to actually observe wins and losses win rates and, and, and the conditions of the wins and losses and all sorts of details about those. From there, we could then go on to start drawing all sorts of relationships. And we've done a tremendous amount of work since that foundation of understanding, you know, price elasticities and, and conditions of winning and losing and, and conditions of where there's higher pricing and lower pricing and all sorts of really fantastic stuff. And then ultimately, you know, it's led us to design some predictive capabilities that allow us to set the best price in the breadth situation or to make a recommendation to a sales rep or to a customer. And, you know, all of that 
was built on a foundation of beginning with an understand, seeking to understand what was of concern to a leader and then pulling on that thread and backing all the way up to the beginning to say, in order to achieve resolving this concern, what will we need to be able to observe that we can't observe right now and building that foundation from there. How did it, it worked out great. How, how did it, at some point though, right? The, the, your, your executive is, your executive is looking for the outcome from the effort, right? And so, but there's human linchpins in the middle, right? In this case, it's, I'm guessing your sales team or someone that's w- would be dealing with, uh, you know, if you're helping to set prices, for example. So how, how and at what point did you use some of these techniques to involve them such that they, they were on board with kind of the big picture of what the project was. Cause sometimes you hear this is where it fails. The, the executives set a strategy, but you know, at some more middle layer of management, it's like, well, I don't really have time to, to work on this or get involved with it. And you're like, no, we really need to ask you some questions about how you set prices when you do a sale. Well, yeah, but I'm on the road this week, but <laughs> like have to right. use some of these techniques to get them to, to believe the outcomes such that you could then go report back some good news. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so everything you just said is all true. Right. <laughs> so let's just start with all of that complexity has been involved and there's been, you know, no small amount of campaigning on my part and the part of folks in change management, internal communications and so forth, you know, with the sales teams, with sales leaders on these topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that you, you sort of hinted at the idea of like, you know, proving that it's worthwhile. We did a pilot with one particular team on the West Coast that showed some fantastic success of using some of the tools we put together. And, you know, I've, I've definitely shouted that from the rooftops as many times as I can. Um, but even right there, you just said you ran a pilot, right? So that suggests yeah. you, you, you went out and found, you had some friendlies, I guess, as I call them. Yeah. <laughs> the yep. That are yep. like, hell yeah, we'll try that. We'll try anything right now. We're not, you know, whatever their incentive was. They were, they were your friendlies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they, and they not only, what, what was wonderful about that group was not only were they open to it, but they were actually, um, they were actually an operations group technically, not a sales uh-huh. group. And what that really meant in practical effect was they were willing to follow an SOP. They were willing to actually follow a technique repeatedly uh-huh. instead of sort of like just you know, shooting from the hip, which is both the, the blessing and the curse of, of your sort of typical salesperson. Um, like on the one hand, it's exactly what you need salespeople to do. And on the other hand, it can make it really difficult when you're trying to run controlled experiments. Um, but the team was very disciplined about it. And, it, you know, and we were able to see absolutely outstanding results. And so, you know, definitely shared that. But what's also interesting is, and I, I'm sure that you know this, even after that, we did not have adoption of these techniques at a widespread level because the hurdle was still too high from a usability standpoint. Even though I could demonstrate that, that using this reporting and using this sort of technique would result in more money, it still wasn't getting the traction that it should. And so we had to take another step of the solution, which is make it much, much easier and much faster for them to actually engage in, in that 
approach and in the intelligence supporting that approach. So we actually just launched uh, not long ago a new technology set for our salespeople that has dramatically lowered the effort hurdle that they had before. And now we're seeing that the adoption uh, shift that's taken place in the last month has been pretty dramatic. It was like we finally got the last barrier knocked out. So my point of like sort of when you open to like, you know, <laughs> what about this element? What about this element? What about this? It's, all of it. it's like, it's true. You, you know, you get the pilot team to prove that it works. You, you talk about how it's better for them, the what's in it for me, you know, for the sales reps. You talk to leadership about how it's good for the company. and It'll make the company more money. You know, you do all that. And then on top of all of that, we still had to solve for making it simpler and faster and easier which we did, and now having piled all of that up, we finally have hit the tipping point and we're seeing sort of mass adoption. Right. And it's taken a few years. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, it's, uh, I would have loved to have, for it to have gone faster, but, um, but this is a marathon, not a sprint. I, I have two, two follow-ups to this. One, are you, uh, and you can add some, blurring to this just to you're not putting anything confidential out there but could you help our audience understand like what was an example of the thing that was blocking or creating usability problems and 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 what did you do to address that that's one thing well let, let me tell you the follow because you may want to answer this first the second one is do you think you could have done something about that earlier or did you have to wait until that you were there to know that that was a barrier Oh, that's a good question. So, um, so I kind of knew it was a barrier always. It's just what we could get done ourselves. So my, I view my team as sort of an R and D function. And if you truly want to institutionalize at scale, the IT team has to do that because they're the ones that own all of the core operational systems. And so, uh, so to, to, to make it a little more precise, we had this report that we would email to our sales reps uh, as a PDF attachment. Mm -hmm. That is not ideal. We would send it once a week and it wasn't interactive. And so the use of it was limited. The upgrade is in two fundamental ways. One, there's a digital version, sort of a website version that's interactive of the report itself. And then on top of that, the other problem we had was that we didn't actually allow them, we'd come up with a great way to sort of analyze what was going on with sales. Mm -hmm. what, we, what we hadn't done is allow them an easy translation to set their profiles, their, their, their pricing, their account information up in a way that aligned with the reporting. Mm -hmm. And so even if they, so, so what that meant was they had to look at the report every single time they wanted to do a quote. Mm -hmm. Now they can look at the report, they can set their settings and then they don't have to go and pull up the report every single time they do a quote because they've already used the reporting to set their defaults. Got it. So, 
That's an example of what I mean. So it, we made it interactive, we made it fast, and we aligned the nature of the decisions that the report was guiding with how they can actually execute their settings. So from a design standpoint, I mean, it, now we have total alignment between it, whereas before there were multiple issues. One, you know, we're sending this sort of clunky attachment to an email. Two, they have to pull up this PDF every single time they're going to do something, you know, and it didn't really align well with how they actually set their pricing in the system. So those were all elements that, you know, helped to, to turn the reduce the friction and uh, drive adoption. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How did you know yeah. that that was the pain? How did you diagnose that this was blocking the wider adoption? A lot of conversations with sales reps and sales leaders mm-hmm. um, was really the number one thing. And it comes back to that listening, you know. I also knew part of it was there's times I was talking about sort of the trust equation and the change and the risk and all that sort of stuff. And there's times when you, you come with a new approach to things and folks are sort of trying to shoot it full of holes. I had never gotten that response when I produced, when I was training folks on how to use this report. So no one was shooting it down in the moment. But then as we followed up and would do follow-up phone calls or look at the results of what was happening in the business, we could see clearly that the reports actually weren't being used. Mm-hmm. So there was something else going on, right? It wasn't, it wasn't that they thought the reports were a bad idea. Right. It wasn't that they felt they were threatening. Right. On the contrary, they thought they were pretty cool. So then you got to go, why, why aren't they actually using it? And it comes back to many of the design elements that are, well, it kind of starts getting into the behavioral economics universe, Kahneman, Tversky, and those guys, you know, as to understanding the power of default settings, understanding sort of the inertia, the natural inertia that most people operate under all the time, you know, and as we started digging into that and figuring out how, how easy could we make it for them? um, We made it easier and easier. and, And now we're getting very enthusiastic you know, engagement. That's, that's so. great. I'm, I'm glad to hear you guys, uh, to, to, to hear that story and to share it, uh, with our audience. Cause I still feel like this, this whole concept that like, you're like, in this case, it sounds like the, the models and the analytics work were not the problem. So it's not, again, it's nope. not always a technology problem. I mean, even if you call the PDF and like building a web-based interface, it's technically that's, you know, Yes, it's technology, but that's not a data science. That's not data science technology. You can get all that right. Nope. And if you don't deliver it in a way that someone's going to engage in this case, you know, a salesperson or ops or whoever they were, you know, you fail. And, and then the whole initiative, <laughs> you lose credibility. It's harder to climb out of that hole the next time there's a big project. So, you know, I'm glad you, you heard that. Yeah. I think that's really true. And I, you know, uh, we also talked a little bit in our preparation this last mile element, you know, it's not just about delivering the right answer. One of the things I tell my team is that having the right answer doesn't mean you're done. It means you're just like halfway at best because, because if it doesn't actually get believed and utilized, then it hasn't really done anything. And I'm actually in the process of lining up a role that I haven't had before on my team called an analytic translator. And 
this is a role I hadn't really given much thought to until I read the recent um, Harvard Business Review article about an AI-powered organization. And they mentioned this role, and I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know, that's actually how I spend a tremendous amount of my own time personally, is explaining how models work or explaining or listening to how the business, like what the business needs are, translating that into analytic approaches or to predictive models that our data science team builds, and then encouraging adoption and use and explaining in a lot of cases, many, many times to many, many different audiences, how it works, how it's aligned with their worldview, um, and what I realized in terms of, you know, as we continue to grow our analytic competency as a company, that my time doing that stuff was becoming a bottleneck and I needed help. Uh, I have certain expectations that our data science and analyst folks interact with the business. So I don't want them, you know, isolated and not talking to people anymore. But the reality is that I do think that there's only so many hours in a week that I need to have them doing the communication stuff and, and they need to be spending a lot of their time, you know, continue to develop the insights and the models and so forth. And so we're at a point now where from a scale and from a pace of change standpoint, it made sense for me to get another role that's got, that's, that's providing help in that respect. And uh, honestly, that's the first time I've had that kind of role on my team, but I think it's, uh, I'm very excited about it and think it's going to be um, a great value for the business and for continuing to advance the the analytic cause here. Great. Yeah. I mean, I'm, def- I'm definitely hearing uh, more about, I have my, my issues with the, the title. I, I, I feel like the title is not ideal, but you know, we don't always control yeah. those, those things, but I think the nature of the work seems to make sense for some of the, the pains and problems that seem to be ongoing. So, um, that, right. You know, I, I can understand how that would be valuable to you guys. So, um, Scott, this has been super great. I, I've really in, enjoyed talking to you and, and some of your your uh, your stories here and, and how you're you're approaching this is, is it's been fantastic. So uh, I did want to ask you one last thing, though. Do you have any closing advice for like uh, people in your shoes, um, people trying to you know make sure their data products and solutions are are creating value? Like any closing thoughts? Well, I can give you my universal career advice. What's that? <laughs> it's two steps. Number one, do good work. Mm-hmm. Number two, tell people about the work. <laughs> it's so simple. I, it sounds so simple. How many people do you know that actually do both of those things? <laughs> Some people tell you about their successes. Maybe, yeah, maybe well, so... First, this, the first... <laughs> The first part, though. (laughs) Right. Well, so, uh, so, you know, yeah. So, so that doesn't sound too tongue in cheek. Let me dissect that just a little bit. When I say do good work, I mean, find a way to work on stuff that matters and do it well. Mm -hmm. So I don't just mean do the work you're assigned well. I mean, seek out work that matters. Try to avoid the work that doesn't matter. And then on top of working on important and valuable work, perform that work yeah. well. So that's the first piece. The second piece is informed 
very much by my time, uh, almost a decade in the great state of Minnesota, which I have a very soft spot in my heart for. There's a lot of people there that I that are just wonderful that I care about, and I I worked at Best Buy, and it was a wonderful company that I loved. But it was a little bit hilariously true to the stereotype that they didn't ever want to make someone feel bad. So there were all sorts of weirdnesses about people putting like their names on PowerPoint decks and stuff because they'd say, well, I don't want to take credit for that. It was really a group effort. And so one of the reasons I came up with a second statement that says, tell people about the work is that if you are actually doing important and interesting work and you're doing it well, then first of all, I find that people are interested in hearing about it. But the second thing is I'm not saying tell people about yourself. That's the fact that you were involved in the work is self-evident based on the fact that you're exposing it. Talk about the work. Then it's not about you. It's about the work. And it kind of helps sidestep that issue that some people have if they don't want to, you know, they, they feel uncomfortable tooting their own horn or sort of, you know, but, but if they're, if they've done something exciting, it can be pretty easy for a person who doesn't even like to promote themselves to be excited about the cool work that they did. And so we do stuff here at our company where I, I put together events where I try to give folks an opportunity to do that. We just did, uh, well, a couple of years ago, we did something called Datapalooza where we had all these folks that had learned SQL code that had built these projects that were incredibly cool. And we did it sort of science fair style. We had, you know, coffee and donuts in the cafeteria and had everybody, you know, set up their trifold posters where they explained what they did. And, you know, those sorts of things are, are sort of, um, they're not that hard to do. And yet they, they don't happen nearly as often as I think they could. So that's my closing thought is do good work and, Tell people about the and work. Was there a was there a volcano at that? Someone did bring a volcano to our last one, um, and it was it was totally awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Where can people uh, follow you and pictures of the volcano, perhaps? But I don't know if I. Well, I'll see if I can find a picture of the volcano. They can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. Scott Friesen, last name is F R I E S E N. And, uh, yeah, I think there's some like YouTube videos around and stuff of some talks I've done. Um, I should, I, you know, I keep telling myself I should write more things, but then I don't write them as often as I'd like to, but Need um, I remind you of part two yeah. of the career advice. I, I know, <laughs> I know I do a better job. I do a better job inside of my companies than I do, uh, in the world at large. <laughs> I should, I should work on that version of it of part two <laughs> well i would i for one would welcome reading reading more so um please please do share more of your thoughts and and uh thanks for for coming on experiencing data this has been super fun i'm so glad thanks for having me brian it was great we hope you enjoyed this episode of experiencing data with brian o'neill if you did enjoy it please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencing data to get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.